0: As far back as I can remember, I've always wanted to escape. Prepare to be mesmerized by the Houdini Brothers. Let's see you get out of these. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Houdini. Everybody wants to escape something. Pull the trigger! I'm the great Houdini!
1: That was Adrian Brody playing Harry Houdini in the 2014 Houdini television miniseries written by today's guest, Nicholas Meyer. Hello and welcome to episode 112 of the Occasional Film Podcast, the occasional companion podcast to the Fast Cheap Movie Thoughts blog. I'm the blog's editor, John Gaspard. In today's episode, Writer-director Nicholas Meyer sits down with my occasional co-host, Jim Cunningham, and me to talk about his work on the Houdini miniseries. We also touch on my favorite Nicholas Meyer film, the Jack the Ripper classic, Time After Time. And we get into Star Trek and Sherlock Holmes as well. It was a fun and fantastic conversation. The Houdini television miniseries was based in part on Nick's father's book, Houdini, A Mind in Chains. Since that was where Nick started, that's where we started as well. Do you remember what it was
2: that caused your dad to write that book? I know something about it. He was interested, His the subjects that kind of absorbed his attention, were the Sons of Passive or Absent Fathers, this was a topic which probably originated from his experiences with his own father, my my grandfather, who was a very interesting man and a kind of a world beater, but who spent so much of his time doing what they said in the Wizard of Oz, being a Philip 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 good deed doer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, he, that he, he didn't have enough time for fathering. He, he was not a bad man at all, quite a conscientious one. But uh, the parenting was, was left to his wife. And I think my father missed and was affected by not having an involved father. And I think that a, a colleague of my dad's said to him, Houdini, that's the guy for you and and that's how he did it. I'm, I'm only sorry that he didn't live to see the two night television series based on his book.
3: yeah I, uh, I enjoyed it immensely as a uh, kind of Houdini fan. It was fascinating and fun and Adrian Brody is terrific as is the woman who plays best. I, I thought I knew a lot about Houdini and there was a lot in there that I, did not know. And I I really enjoyed the opening to it, which suggests that it's all fact and all fiction, and it's our job to figure out which is which. How did you come to being involved with the TV miniseries about your dad's book?
2: I have been friends and worked for many years with a television producer named Jerry Abrams. I started working with Jerry in 1973 with the first teleplay that I wrote was for a a television movie called Judge D and the Haunted Monastery. There was a, a, China apparently invented everything first, including detective stories. And a circuit court judge in the seventh century, Judge D. Gen J, uh, solved mysteries. And people wrote detective stories about him, and now there are movies about him. But back in 1972 or something like that, and I had just come to Hollywood and was looking for work and didn't know anybody, and I met Jerry Abrams, and uh, I met a director named Jeremy Kagan, and I'm happy to say both of these gentlemen are alive and still my friends. Uh, It gave me a shot to write this Judge D in the Haunted Monastery because I think ABC thought they were going to get a kung fu movie out of it, which it wasn't. But it was a television movie with an all Asian cast. The monastery in question was the old Camelot Castle on the Warner Brothers lot. And that's where I met Jerry. And Jerry and I have been friends ever since. Jerry's son is J.J. Abrams, who directs movies. Anyway, Jerry said to me a couple of years ago, let's do Houdini. And I said, oh, funny, you should say that because my dad wrote a very interesting Book about Houdini. I I would be interested if it were based on his book.
1: I would only be interested, and that's how it got made. Hmm. What was your process for? uh, Did you know it was two nights going in? Did you know it's going to be that long? Did you? How did you get started on it? What what other resources did you use? Because I know there's stuff mentioned in the movie that I don't remember being in your dad's books. You must have had to dig a little bit.
2: There's a there's a lot of books about Houdini that I read. Many many books, because my dad's book is distinguished, if if one could call it that, by being the only book of all the books about Houdini that attempts some inner explanation of his psychological process, the why, why would you do this? Why do you feel the need to do this? Other books will tell you what Houdini did. And some will tell you how he did it. But my dad's book, as I say, it kind of explores the why of it. And so I read these other books to supplement the rest of the the how and the what. And I've amassed quite a large Houdini library. When I say large, probably compared to yours, not so much, but I must have like 10 books about Houdini and flying airplanes and Houdini and Arthur Conan Doyle and spiritualism and, and so forth. Uh, so yes, I read all those to supplement what I was uh, trying to condense. I don't remember whether uh, at this point, whether it was proposed as two nights or three nights or, or whatever. I also know that if it hadn't been for Adrian Brody agreeing to play Houdini, it it never would have happened. They weren't going to do it without a star.
3: He's great. So nothing, is, uh, nothing so happens without best. a star. Yeah.
1: I was telling Jim earlier, um, before you got on, that uh, my wife was kind enough to sit down and watch it with me. She, she's always worried in things like this that she's going to see how something's done. She doesn't want to know how magic is done at all. And when we got to the end, she said, "Houdini seems so nice. He's such a likable guy." And I said, "I think that's really more Adrian Brody." Oh, uh, it
2: is. It's yeah. yeah. Adrian Brody.
1: As I say, the movie would not
2: have got made without Adrian. I'm not sure that he wasn't to a large degree cast against type. Mm -hmm. I I think Houdini was a guy with ants in his pants, a a, a kind of frenetic uh, character. And I don't think when you read about him in any detail, that he was what you'd call nice. I think he was a person who had a lot of charm, That he could switch on and off like a tap and i think and this is one of the things that my dad's book brings out and we tried to bring it out in the movie that houdini's whose own father was a failure a flop an absent parent so i think houdini spent a lot of his life looking for substitutes or alternative father figures and i think the first one he probably stumbled on was the French magician Robert Houdin from from whom he took his his name and i think Houdini's pattern at least according to my dad's reading of it was to find father figures and fall hard for them only to ultimately become disenchanted and alienated and furious with them probably because ultimately they weren't his real father But I think there was something like that going on.
1: Yeah, it's pretty clear that that that's what happened with Doyle as well.
2: Yes, yes. But he had better reason than in some other cases to be disenchanted with Doyle because Doyle's Atlantic City seance with Lady Doyle, uh, Houdini ultimately regarded as a real betrayal uh, because he decided, probably correctly, that the contact with his mother via Lady Doyle doing spirit writing um, was fake. And, And by the way, it's not that Mrs. Doyle or Lady Doyle might not have believed what she was doing. It just didn't track for two reasons, as your listeners may already know. Houdini experienced this this contact with his mother, and he was as obsessed with her as he was with the fact of an absent father. And he was so overcome when she spoke to him via the spirit writing that it was a couple of days before he realized that his mother didn't speak a word of English, and she had communicated via Lady Doyle in English. She only spoke Yiddish. Doyle got around this difficulty by explaining that the medium In this case, Lady Doyle uh, worked as a kind of simultaneous translator. And Houdini said, yeah, but, and this was the second item, it was his birthday, and she never mentioned it. Mm. And she always sent him something on his birthday. And he then denounced Doyle and Lady Doyle as, quote, menaces to mankind. Oh, boy. End quote. Wow. So were you involved in a day-to-day way with production? And, and I'm wondering why, why you didn't direct it. I was involved. I was in The whole movie was shot in Budapest. Everything. And I was involved. I was not invited to direct. I, I, I have not directed really since the death of my wife in 1993. I had two small children to raise. And by the time it was like possible for me to go back since they are now grown up and busy. I was sort of out of the game. Oh, that's too bad. You're you're a terrific director.
1: I'm not arguing with you. <laughs> so as you were scripting it and you were using other sources, how concerned were you about this is fact, this is fiction?
2: That's a very good question. And it doesn't just apply to Houdini, it impl- it, it applies largely to the, the whole issue of dramatizing the stories taken based on real events. And by the way, you could make the case in a way that there's no such thing as fiction, that all fiction ultimately can be traced back to something real. I'll give you two examples off the top of my head. One, uh, Moby Dick was based on a real whale called Mocha Dick because of his color. And as Heinrich Schliemann uh, proved when he discovered Troy, most legends, most myths, have their origins somewhere in the mists of time, in some kind of reality. It turns out there was a place called Troy. So he was not far sort of off the mark. It's a knotty question with a K, how much we owe to fact and how much we get to mush around and drama, dramatize. And the answer has to be inevitably elastic. The, the part that's the problem is that people are neither taught nor do they read history anymore. We are not taught civics. We are not taught history. Nobody knows anything. And so by default, movies and television are where we get our history. And that history is not always truthful. It is dramatized. For example, in that Academy Award winning movie, The Deer Hunter, we learn that the, that the North Vietnamese made American prisoners of war in Vietnam play Russian roulette. There's no evidence, no historical evidence that they ever did any such thing. And yet, if you're getting your history from the movies, that's what you see. And someone said that seeing is believing. In any case, You have to sort of always be looking over your own shoulder when you are dramatizing history and realizing that, yes, you can telescope dates and characters, but what's the point where you cross a line and start inventing things out of whole cloth? Give you another example. Was Richard III really the monster that Shakespeare portrays. Now remember, Shakespeare is writing for the granddaughter of the man who killed Richard III and usurped his throne and calls himself King. You could make a very different case that that guy was a scumbag and that Richard was not. But, you know, Shakespeare was in business. The Globe Theater was a money-making operation and Henry VII's granddaughter was the queen of England. (laughs) So there are a lot of variables here when you sit down to dramatize. I've worked for the History Channel, one was Houdini, and I can tell you the History Channel will not make a movie where Americans look bad. Really? History Channel will not make a movie that questions at any point in our own history, our right to the moral high ground. Hmm. It's a uh, point of view and they have a demographic and Americans don't want to be shown any of their own flaws or asked to think about them. Well, who does?
3: Can I ask questions about the espionage part of what I witnessed last night? Although I had a a, sort of a vague um, memory that there is some espionage connection or perhaps connection. Perhaps. Yeah, perhaps. It was very clear uh, in the first episode that he was working for at least the American government and perhaps the English government as well. Is is there evidence for that?
2: Circumstantial evidence,
3: yes. And I suppose that it it could still be, uh, even at this late date, protected in some way uh, in terms of, I don't know, them not admitting or maybe no real hard evidence exists anymore, right?
2: I'm more inclined to think that no real hard evidence exists, although we all know that, you know, somebody said truth is the daughter of time, but a lot of evidence has, uh, for a lot of things, not merely in this country, but also England, has been redacted and eliminated and, and buried. You know, how many of your listeners know the story of Alan Turing. Alan Turing may have shortened World War II by as much as two years by inventing the computer that, you know, helped break the German Enigma code. Alan Turing signed the Official Secrets Act, which meant that his wartime work could never be revealed. Alan Turing was gay. After the war was over, Alan Turing was arrested on a morals and decency charge and he could not tell the world who he was and so he was sentenced to some kind of chemical castration i believe that's right and he killed himself and all of this remained a secret for the next 55 years before the world you know learned And suddenly there was a play called Breaking the Code. And then there was the Enigma novel by Robert Harris. And then there was uh, the movie, which is very inaccurate and very troublesome to me, The Imitation Game. Because in The Imitation Game, the first thing he does when he's arrested is tell the cop who he is. And the cop believes him. Well, the crushing irony, as well as inaccuracy, is that there's no way he was allowed to tell. That was the price you pay when you sign the Official Secrets Act. So that, that movie kind of bugged me. Whereas for example, Enigma, which I think is one of my favorite movies, uh, doesn't bug me at all because it doesn't call him Alan Turing and therefore he's not gay and it's a different story entirely, spun out of, inspired by, but not pretending to be Alan Turing.
3: Well, now I'm gonna to have to watch that movie because I don't think I've seen it. You never saw Enigma? I don't believe I I, I saw Enigma. Of course, the only
2: it's the only movie produced by Mick Jagger and Lauren Michaels, <laughs> written by Tom Stoppard, Kate Winslet, Dougray Scott, Jeremy Northam. Anyway, it's a fantastic. It's a fantastic movie, but you have to watch it like five times in order to understand everything that's going on, because Tom Stoppard is not going to make it easy.
1: It's, uh, just a quick side light here. I remember reading somewhere that uh, Mick Jagger was a possible first choice for uh, Time After Ripper.
2: Time. Yeah, Jack the Ripper.
1: Okay. Interesting. I, I prefer the choice you came up with. but that's... Well,
2: when they Warner Brothers, who was trying to sort of figure out how to make this movie, quote, commercial, they were so surprised when it was a hit. They they suggested Mick Jagger as Jack the Ripper. And uh, he was in L.A. at the time touring. And I I really didn't understand the politics of not just filmmaking, but, you know, sort of office politics generally. And my first reply was No. You know, you might believe him as the Ripper, but you'd never believe him. Or I didn't think you would believe him as a Harley Street surgeon. And they said, you mean you won't even meet him? And that's when I said, oh, okay, I get it. I have to agree to meet, you know, so I met him. And then I said, fellas, I still don't, you know, think this can work. And so we went on to David Warner.
3: I think that was the first film I uh became aware of David Warner, and of course, it colored my opinion of David Warner for everything I've seen him in since, including him as Bob Cratchit in a version of Christmas Carol. I kept thinking to myself, don't turn your back on him. He's a killer. He's a stone-cold killer because of Time After Time, which is still one of my favorite movies.
1: Oh, thank you so much. We promise not to geek out too much, but I have to tell you that the the hotel room scene between him and mcdowell i still pull up once or twice here to look at who is it your breakfast sir
0: bless my soul may i come in certainly certainly you were literally the last person on earth i expected to see you've given me quite a turn Though now I think of it, there was no way of preventing the machine from returning. I haven't the key. No. And you managed to find the nerve after all. After I'd tested your machine for you. And how did you manage to track me down once you'd got here? That was brilliant. We must add detective to your list of accomplishments. Your regular Sherlock Holmes. I'm not here to engage in idle banter with you, Stevenson. You've used me. And you've used my machine to escape the ends I of I must congratulate you on that device. I confess that at dinner the other... ...century, I thought you'd lost your wits. But fate intervened and forced me to ascertain for myself that you are truly the Columbus of a new age. The dawn of time travel. I salute you. I'm obliged to take you back to face the consequences of your acts. <laughs> you can't be serious. You're so Victorian take me back how do you propose to do that by force be reasonable John we don't belong here we violated we don't belong here on the contrary Tonight, Herbert presents a special documentary Captain I belong here completely utterly
1: I'm home they're both so so good in that scene yeah. they are that they are I think you mentioned in your memoir in passing that when you did seven percent solution, there was some back and forth with the Doyle estate. We, Jim, and I have a friend, Jeff Hatcher, who wrote the screenplay for Mr. Holmes, which was based on a book. Which uh, once the movie came out, did run into some issues with the Doyle estate because the writer had taken some characteristics of Holmes from later books, which weren't. It's all yet, it's uh, all bullshit. Uh, all that is bullshit. The the the
2: Doyle estate which was once the richest literary estate in the world, was run into the ground by his descendants and their in-laws. And they don't care anything about Sherlock Holmes. All they care about is money. And what they try to do is to stick up movie companies and book companies and say, you've got to pay. And back when Holmes legitimately fell into copyright, which is when I wrote The 7% Solution, yes, I had to pay and I understood that. I mean, I didn't understand it when I wrote the book because I was a kid, but I understood it when it was explained to me. What since happened is they continue, even though he's out of copyright, to try to pretend that he is or that one or two stories are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. My friend, Les Klinger, who is, a business manager, but also happens to be a lawyer and a Holmes enthusiast, took the estate to court and won. He broke that bullshit stranglehold that they were trying to exercise on anybody who wanted to write or create or make a movie about Holmes. Now, it's also true that big companies like Warner Brothers or Paramount or something, if they make a Sherlock Holmes movie and the Doyle estate come sniveling to their door, find it cheaper to say, here's $10,000, go away, than it is to bother to do what Les did, which was take him to court. It's just, it's blackmail. It's, you've all seen The Godfather, you know, give me a little something to wet my beak, <laughs> uh, is what this is all about. I have nothing good to say about them. And what they did with Mr. Holmes, your, your friend's movie,
1: was they waited until the movie was about to come out before they hit him. Um, Jim, I should mention, you probably don't know this, that, uh, and this is the truth, the man we're talking to is the man for whom the thing at the beginning of a DVD that says the the opinions expressed here are not those of this company. He's the reason that's on DVDs.
2: Is that right? Yes, I will explain because I'm very proud of it. (laughs) I've made a couple of contributions to civilization one of them is the movie the day after it's my nuclear war movie and the other is this little sign and it it happened when they were preparing the dvd release of star trek II: the wrath of khan and i was interviewed and asked to explain my contributions to the making the movie the script the directing etc so i I told the story about how I came to write the script and the DVD lady who subsequently became a very good friend of mine said, gee, the lawyers say we can't use any of what you told us. And I said, and why is that? And they said, Paramount was worried about getting in trouble with the Writers Guild because you are not credited as the author and you wrote this sort of under the table, the script. And I said, well, why don't you just take me out of the whole DVD? Because if I can't tell the truth about it, I don't want to be in it. And she said, that's what I hoped you would say. Now I've got some ammo. So she went back and she came back and she said, okay, here's the deal. And the deal now applies to every studio. The opinions expressed in this interview are not those of Paramount Pictures its employees or affiliates. What this does is it stops those interviews from being bullshit puff pieces and allows them to become oral histories. Now, different people may have different oral histories of the same thing. You put them all on the DVD, but suddenly you've opened up a whole world to telling things that really happened or that the tellers think really happened or are their opinions, without the studio worried that they're gonna be sued because of that little disclaimer. And, and they all have that now. Yep. And that's my contribution.
3: Well, that's great. Now, I promised John before this interview that I would not talk uh, Star Trek with you. But since you've opened the door a little bit here, <laughs> now that you say that you wrote Wrath of Khan under the table, can, can you just flesh that out for me? It might not ever be in the podcast, but I'm an incredible... Star Trek fan. So I'm interested in this story.
2: Well, very quickly, I knew nothing about Star Trek when I met Harv Bennett, the producer of what was going to be the second Star Trek movie. And he showed me the first movie. He showed me some of the episodes. And I got kind of jonesed to make an outer, an outer space, a space opera. And I realized once I started to familiarize myself with Captain Kirk, that he he reminded me of Captain Hornblower, which was the books by C.S. Forrester that I read when I was a kid about a captain in the Royal Navy during the Napoleonic Wars who had adventures and a girl in every port, which sounded good to me. <laughs> um, I was 12. Anyway, I think it was 13 or something. And so I thought, oh, this is, this is Hornblower in outer space. This is destroyers. This is submarines. So I made a deal with, Paramount and Harv Bennett to direct a Star Trek movie for them, which was going to be their second movie. And Harv said, draft five of the script is coming in. So I went home and waited for draft five. And, you know, I looked up and it was three or four weeks later and wondered whatever happened, because I I was starting to think about spaceships and stuff like that. And he said, oh, I I can't send you the the script it's not good i i can't say i said well what about draft four draft three whatever and he said and you don't understand all these different drafts are simply separate attempts to get another star trek movie they're unrelated and i said well send them all to me i want to i want to read them and he said really i said <laughs> yeah and in those days you didn't hit send a truck drove up <laughs> like a van, and it and it had a lot of scripts. And I'm a very slow reader, and I sat and I read all these scripts. And then I said, why don't you and your producing partner, Robert Salen, come up to my house and l- let's have a chat about this, because I have an idea. And so they showed up, and I had my ubiquitous legal pad. And I said, why don't we make a list of everything we like in these five scripts? It could be a major plot. It could be a subplot. It could be a sequence. It could be a scene. It could be a character. It could be a line of dialogue. I don't care. Let's just make the list. And then I'll try to write a new screenplay that incorporates as many of these elements as we pick. And they didn't look happy. And I I thought, well, I don't get a lot of ideas. And this was, this was my idea. And I said, what's wrong with what, what what's wrong with that? And, uh, they said well the problem is that if we don't have a screenplay within 12 days industrial light and magic the special effects house for the movie say they can't deliver the shots in time for the june opening and i said what june opening you know i'd only directed one movie in my life and i said they and these guys had booked the theaters for a, for a movie that didn't exist and i said well okay okay I'll try to do this in 12 days, but we we got to pick the stuff now. And they still weren't happy. And I said, so what, what, what is it? What's, what's the problem? And they said, well, you know, let's be honest. We couldn't even make your deal in 12 days. And at this point, I was like foaming at the mouth. I said, look, guys, forget the deal. Forget the money. Forget the credit. I'm not talking about directing. We've already got that signed, sealed and delivered but if we don't do this now, there's going to be no movie. Yes or no? You know, and I was an idiot because I, at that point gave away, you know, what turned out to be significant. So I didn't invent Kirk meets his son. I didn't invent Khan. I didn't invent Savick. I didn't invent the Genesis plan. I didn't invent any of those things. I just took them and played with them like a Rubik's cube and poured my, essentially it's all my dialogue from Harv. Yeah. Harvard wrote of a few lines, but I I wrote most of it.
3: Well, it certainly worked. Oh boy. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, And I I will not bring up The Undiscovered Country because I promised John I wouldn't. The 7% solution is very interesting. You took one thing and you extrapolated out from that an entire uh, kind of reality about homes that had not been explored. And it's similar to kind of what your father did with Houdini. And I I just, did did that ever occur to you that there was, there's a, a, you know, a similarity there somehow?
2: Well, I did 7% before he did Houdini. That's- that's So he owes you then? Oh yeah, big time. (laughs) It's interesting. I, I was not the first person to put together Holmes and Freud. In fact, Freud knew that he'd been compared to Holmes. Freud loved to read Sherlock Holmes stories. That was his bedtime reading. And at some point he even wrote in one of his case histories, I followed the labyrinth of her mind, Sherlock Holmes-like until it led me to, so he, he knew about this comparison. And there was a doctor at Yale, famous psychiatrist, drug expert, who wrote a paper that my father gave me to read about Holmes, Freud, and the cocaine connection, because Holmes is a cocaine user, and for a time, so was Freud. And when my book came out and was the number one best-selling novel in the United States for 40 weeks, I got sued by this doctor at Yale for plagiarism. This is like the first successful thing I'd ever done in my life. And this guy was saying, I ripped him off because he was probably walking across campus and people were saying, hey doc, hey professor, that guy guy in the New York Times, he ripped you off. So I got sued. This is how you know you're a hit is when you get (laughs) sued. Uh, But I was devastating to me. It was devastating and it was expensive because I had to defend myself. I had a lawyer and the lawyer said, they have no case, we will ask for something called summary judgment. And I said, does that mean we have to wait till July? And he goes, no, no, no. (laughs) It's not about, (laughs) I couldn't resist. Summary Um, judgment. Summary judgment, yeah, that happened in the summertime. Summary judgment turns out to mean that the facts of the case are not in dispute. No one can dispute that I read his essay. I put it in my acknowledgments. I thanked him for it. I read it. The question is, what is the definition of plagiarism? It turns out you cannot copyright an idea. You can only copyright the expression of an idea. The words. I hadn't used his words. I hadn't used any of his words. I didn't write an academic paper. I wrote a novel. I wrote a story. So I won. And then he appealed. And I won again. End of story. So it's, uh, you know, it didn't originate with me. Nothing originates with me. Moby Dick was based on another whale. Emma Bovary was a real person, on and on and on. If you read a history or a biography, you understand that in good faith, efforts have been made to lay out the facts. But when you read a historical novel, you understand that the facts have been mushed around and dramatized that the author has assumed the dramatist's privilege, his prerogative to help things along. There's an Italian phrase, si non è vero e ben trovato. If it it didn't happen that way, it should (laughs) have. Give you another example. Queen Elizabeth I and her cousin and rival, Mary Queen of Scots, whom Elizabeth subsequently Had beheaded, never met in real life. They never met, but of all the four thousand six hundred and twenty-two movies, plays, operas, novellas, ballets, whatever they always meet. Yeah, because it ain't cool if they don't meet.
1: It's a better story. Yeah, it's a better story. Thanks to Nicholas Meyer for chatting with us and giving us so many great and better stories over the years. A longer version of this interview can be found on two episodes of my other podcast, Behind the Page, the Eli Marks Podcast. Check out episodes 215 and 216 for the complete conversation with the one and only Nicholas Meyer. Look in the show notes for links to those two episodes, as well as other links of interest, including some free filmmaking books. Did you enjoy this interview? You can find lots more just like it on the Fast Cheap Movie Thoughts blog. Check out the link in the show notes. Plus, more interviews can be found in my books, Fast Cheap and Under Control, Lessons Learned from the Greatest Low Budget Movies of All Time, and its companion book of interviews with screenwriters called Fast Cheap and Written That Way. Both books can be found on Amazon. And while you're there check out my mystery series of novels about magician Eli Marks and the scrapes he gets into. The entire series, starting with the ambitious card, can be found on Amazon in paperback, hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats. And if you haven't done it already, check out the podcast companion to the books, behind the page, The Eli Marks Podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Well, that's it for episode 112 of the Occasional Film Podcast, which was produced at Grass Lake Studios. Original music composed and performed by Andy Morantz. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you occasionally.